Amen. It's good to be here with you, church family. Before I get into the message this morning, I want to present a challenge to you. Uh, back at the beginning of January, maybe the second or third week of January, the Lord really began to, to burden my heart with the fact that during this time of COVID and the pandemic and all of the changes and all of the struggles that we'd gone through, the, the greatest concern I had was that we had not seen a single person saved, born again. We had not seen the baptistry used in a year as we walked through this, this difficult time. And, and though I understand that there were all kinds of various challenges, I just, uh, I mean, it brought me to tears, if you'll remember, one Sunday morning as we talked about it. And as we began to pray about that, Kevin came to my office uh, within a few days and he said, Pastor, I believe the Lord's calling us to begin to have a time of prayer for the lost on Tuesday nights. Well, it's very, it's not something that we've ever done here before. And, and you know, we've had a traditional Wednesday night prayer meeting in the past and, and done that various ways. But what we've been doing on Tuesday nights since the middle of February is every Tuesday night we come in here and whether there's uh, eight or 10 of us or, or as many as 30 or 40 of us, we write down the names of someone who we know that is lost, that doesn't know Jesus as Savior or that we're unsure about. We'll write those on a card and we'll pray for the lost. It may take us 20, 30 minutes. It's taken us up to 40, 45 minutes at times. But I want to give you one sense of the fruit from that. This week on Wednesday at staff meeting, we had talked about how we'd seen a car in our parking lot the last couple of days and we didn't know who it was. And so uh, coming back from lunch, uh, Tori, and, and Matt, uh, not, Tori and Nathan were in my truck and uh, we were talking about that. And I told Nathan, I said, well, if you see the guy out there, just stop and talk to him. Get out and visit with him. And, Tori, I don't want you doing that. But uh, and Nathan, uh, that, and, and if I see him, I'll, I'll do that. So we drove up in the parking lot. And lo and behold, this guy was parked in our parking lot. And so I got out and, and just scared him when I drove up next to him and got out and introduced myself to him and found out that uh, he simply, he lives in South Fort Worth and his wife works up here very near our church and uh, they, he had lost his job. He's looking for another job, but they only have one car right now. And so he didn't want to drive up here and then drive all the way back to Crowley and then come back and pick her up in the evenings. And, and I said, you know, that's fine. You can stay in our parking lot. If you need to use the restroom, uh, just knock on the office door and let us know. And, and you, can, you can use the, the facilities. You, we, we, we got water. If you just need anything, just let us know. And I just left it at that. and didn't say anything else to him. I didn't felt compelled to, to do anything else at that point. Thursday afternoon, I was up here beginning to work on these small offices. We're going to do a little bit of a remodel and, and uh, reframing a door. And Matthew and I were carrying out some of the, the trash and putting it in the back of my pickup. And here he comes around the corner. This is a young man in his, his upper 20s. And, and uh, I could tell he was clearly disturbed about something. And I, and I called him by name and I said, uh, is, what's going on? Is everything okay? And he said, Ever since you, you talked to me yesterday, my spirit's just been disturbed. He said, I, I feel like I need to talk to you about some spiritual things. So Matthew and I began to talk to him about the Lord and share the gospel with him. And it became clear that the Lord had already been doing a work in his life. He had visited a church the last couple of weeks. His wife is pregnant and is uh, due in November, and he's concerned about, uh, about some things going on in his life. And so we shared with him for a long time, and I really felt presented the gospel very clearly, but I, I just didn't feel like I could force the issue. If I forced him to kind of say a prayer or something like that, he would push back. And, and so we, we very clearly shared the gospel. Matthew went in and got one of the tab New Testaments that we've used to share the gospel in the past, brought it back out to him. And, and uh, he had uh, 
Uh, I went through that with him, shared the same scriptures I'd already gone over with him a couple of times, probably for about 45 minutes. And, and eventually I just said, do you mind if I just pray for you? And he said, oh, no, no, I'd be glad. And so I prayed for him and then he went back to his car around the other side of the church. And I went back to work. Matthew left to come in here and get ready for uh, Tuesday or Thursday evening practice. And about 15 or 20 minutes later, I was getting my tools out and here he is, he's standing in the hallway with tears running down his eyes. And he said, I'm ready to pray right now. And I said, well, let's do it. He got down on his knees. And he prayed to ask God to forgive him of his sin, to cleanse him, to make him the father that he needs to be and the husband that he needs to be and to lead his life. I don't have permission to share his name, so I won't publicly, but I got his phone number and he called the pastor that he'd met with to follow up. I told him, I said, I'd love to, to help you grow and baptize you, but, but you live down in Rendon and Crowley area. Let's get you connected to your pastor. And uh, he's going to follow up and be baptized down there. It, that He will never show up as a baptismal uh, statistic here at First Baptist Watauga. But I think he's the 10th person that's come to faith in Christ since we started praying for the lost. Guy. <laughs> I know Tuesday night's a weird night. We meet at 6.30. You're busy. you got stuff going on in your life. This summer is going to get crazy where the staff is in and out on vacation. If you're available to come up here, there will always be a staff member here on Tuesday night at 6.30 praying. If you're able to come up here at 6.30 and pray, come. Take that time. It may just be 30 minutes out of your day, but come and pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what you're doing. We recognize that... There is nothing within us that gives us the strength or the power or the authority or the wisdom that anybody might be saved. But Lord, your word is powerful and your spirit does a work. And I thank you that you have simply begun to do a work through your church in various ways that we might see those who don't know you come to faith in you. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. Pray that your spirit would continue to move in a mighty way to accomplish your purposes that certainly 2021 will look much different than 2020 did. We love you, Lord. Guide us as we study your word together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1956, now I'm, I'm old enough to, to know that uh, or to remember the days of home economic classes. Did any of y'all ever take a home ec class? There's a few people in here old enough to take a home ec class. At least you remember those days. Some of the younger students won't know what that means, but uh, you may have seen this going around. This has been popular a few years back on social media. But in 1956, one of the home economic textbooks had this advice for what it meant to be a good wife, okay? Have dinner ready. Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious meal on time. This is a way of letting your husband know that you've been thinking about him and that you're concerned about his needs. Most men are hungry when they come home, and the prospects of a good meal are part of a warm welcome need. And I'm not going to read you all of these points. I'm going to give you a couple of them. Prepare yourself, it says. Take 15 minutes to rest so that you'll be refreshed when he arrives. Touch up your makeup. Put a ribbon in your hair and be fresh looking. He has just about, have been about a lot of weary work people. Be a little gay and a little more interesting. 
His boring day may need a lift. One of my favorites down here says, make him comfortable. Have him lean back in a comfortable chair. Suggest that he lie down in the bedroom. Have a cool or warm drink ready for him. Arrange his pillow and offer to take off his shoes. Speak in a low, soft, soothing, pleasant voice and allow him to relax and unwind. Listen to him. You may have a dozen things that you want to tell him, but the moment of his arrival is not the time. Let him talk first. <laughs> Prepare the children. Take a few minutes to watch, wash the children's hands and faces. And if they're small, comb their hair. And if necessary, change their clothes. They're little treasures, and he would like to see them playing the part. <laughs> My guess is that textbook is no longer in use. Uh, can you imagine? We certainly live in a different generation than what our parents grew up in. I read that because there was, in that day, there was this expectation of how the household was run. And certainly, that was in the 50s. And in the 50s, coming out of World War II, in the 50s, we begin to see more and more two-income households. But you still had this, this expectation. There's an illustration that I've used in the past uh, we're going to be looking at John 15, verses 9 through 17. If you go ahead and turn there, there's an illustration that I've used in the past. Some of you may have heard me share this about a woman from that era. In fact, she was actually from the 40s, I believe, when she was married her first husband. And when she first got married, her husband made her a list like this, a list of his expectations of when she would have supper ready and what she would do for him and, and the kind of things that, that he desired for her uh, to, to accomplish or to, to do for him as his wife. And it was kind of a checklist of sorts. And, and uh, she sought to fulfill that checklist, but for her it was always kind of, a, it was a drudgery. It was like a, a list of things she had to do. And, and she just never had that, that, that real love relationship with her husband. It was like he was the boss and she was to submit. He died after several years from a tra tragic accident, and she, after being widowed for a few years, remarried, married the man who she described as the love of her life. And after being married uh, over a decade, she was going through some old papers up in the attic, digging through a box, and she found that original checklist from her first husband. And as she began to, she read those items that she was to do. She began to weep. And she realized that every single one of those things she was doing for her second husband, but it wasn't a drudgery. It was natural because they had a love relationship with each other. God desires to have a love relationship with his children, with those whom he's created. We've talked about that as we looked at this farewell address of Jesus. And we're smack in the middle of Jesus' farewell address in the Gospel of John. To set it up for you again, John chapter 13, we see the, the washing of the feet, the, the, the Lord's Supper take place, and then Jesus introduces kind of his last words. And then John 14, 15, and 16 all take place from the, the, after Judas has left the room, and so Jesus is talking to his 11 committed disciples. 
At the end of John chapter 14, Scripture says there in, in one phrase, get up and let's leave this place. And we know then that Jesus has finished his discussion in the upper room and they're going toward the Garden of Gethsemane. So John chapter 15 and 16 is Jesus teaching his disciples as they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then John chapter 17 records what John heard or John's uh, of Jesus's prayer in the garden. And so, this, these three chapters are referred to as Jesus's farewell address. And, and in John 15, verses 9 through 17, we're smack in the middle of that farewell address. I see John 15 as, as three big points. John, the first section of John 15 uh, talks about our relationship with the Heavenly Father, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, he who abides in me bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That first third of John 15 deals directly with our relationship with God. The middle section, and what we're talking about today, specifically addresses our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking to his disciples about his expectations of how they treat each other. Now, the, thir the, the, the third section of John chapter 15, Jesus is talking about the relationship the disciples are going to have with the world, uh, those that are outside of, of the church, those that are outside of, of those who have, have been born anew. And so, Focus today on, and keep that in mind, that this, this passage in particular is teaching us about how we are to deal with each other within the body of Christ. Now, read with me, John 15, 9, the Scripture says, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. And you're my friends if you do what I've commanded you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another." Do you get the main point out of that text? It's pretty clear. And in fact, at the end of John chapter 13, right after Judas had left the room, Jesus had, had started, he had kind of introduced this entire section with those same words. So I'm going to break this down and look at three different sections here. Verses 9 through 11 really focuses on this command to abide in my love, he says. Abiding in the love of Christ. Now, interestingly, this is the only imperative verb in the entire text. It's not the only command. We'll look at the other command in a second. But it's the only one that's, that uses that, uh, that, that tense, uh, that verbal sense of command when he says, abide or remain in my love. And I think that's important for us to see here. This is not a suggestion that we walk in a relationship with him, that we have a love relationship with the living God. It's not a good idea. It's not an option that Jesus gives us. It is a command. In, in, the, the, in verse 9 there, he says, as, my, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. 
remain in my love. Jesus commands that we remain or abide or dwell in his love. That Greek word is translated all three of those ways in, in various uh, New Testament versions. And uh, the reason for that is it has this sense or this idea of hanging out there, taking up residence in his love. It's the same word that he used back in the first part of John 15 when he says, remain in me or abide in me. What's the difference? He adds this sense of when, we're, when we abide in him, when our, every fiber of our being has connected to every fiber of his being, when we have, have connected together with Christ, that we're not just abiding in him in some ethereal way. We're going to remain in a love relationship with him. And so the focus now is pressed toward a love relationship. And I think that's really important because it's so easy for us to, when we start talking about the word obey and command, and we talk about the word love and relationship, we put those on two opposite ends of the spectrum. When in Scripture, and you see it right here in John 15, they're really just two opposite sides of the coin. They're not completely different. Jesus tells us that we We'll remain in a love relationship with him when we keep his commandments. We'll desire to keep his commandments when we're walking in a love relationship with him. And that's why I began today with that illustration. Because the, the, the story that I told, that, that particular husband and wife, the, the, the woman with her second husband, they had such a love relationship with one another that it didn't seem like commands. They, they wanted to care for each other. They wanted to provide for each other. And so there was this love relationship that came natural. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. As the Father has loved me, I've loved you. Hang out, dwell, live in my love. Walk in that love relationship. Remember the love of Christ. Focus on the love of Christ. When we sing songs about what he's done for us on the cross, it immediately causes me to remember the love of Christ. Now, there's times when I, when I have felt like God didn't love me. There's struggles going on in our life. And those of you that know our story with the loss of our daughter, Katie, and some of the battles that we went through and some of the struggles we faced, there's been times when I just felt like God wasn't there or God didn't love me. But all I had to do was pause long enough to look to the cross. And when I remember that God sent his son, that 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 he would die on the cross to demonstrate his love for me, that settled the issue. I may not like what's going on in life. I may not understand everything that's happening in life, but whether or not God loves me was settled on the cross. 1 John 3.16, we all know John 3.16. 1 John 3.16 says this, this is how we've come to know love. He laid down his life for us. That's how we came to know love. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for me to get my life cleaned up. Jesus died on the cross because he loved me. He settled it. We are commanded to abide, dwell in that love. When we, when we do, we will walk in obedience. Commands, the, the, the commands of Christ won't be uh, heavy on our shoulders. We will desire to please him. We'll desire to do good things for him. That, that's, that's what a love relationship 
means. That's how it takes shape. I believe that the very best marriages are when the, the husband does everything he can. He makes it his goal. And this is what I, what I teach in marriage counseling. Husband, your goal ought to be to surrender and sacrifice your life to make your wife happy. Wife, your goal ought to be to, to surrender and sacrifice your desires to make your husband happy. Now, we could spend a lot of time digging into Scripture to, to show you where Scripture teaches that over and over and over again. We're going to see a little bit of it here in a minute. But when you're doing that, that's true love. And both people end up coming out of the, of the relationship better and built up and happy and fulfilled. If you go into a relationship trying to get what you can out of it, and it doesn't just happen in marriage. People do this with, with God all the time. Well, I'm going to go to God and it's going to be transactional. As long as I get what I want, then I'm going to be okay. As long as I can go to church and get what I want out of the service, I can get what I want out of the, out of the class, then that's what I'm looking for. That's not a love relationship. That's a transactional relationship, a contract. God desires a love relationship with us and that we abide in his love. And when we do that, Jesus says, your, my joy will be in you and your joy will be made complete. Interesting, we spent a lot of time last week looking at how when we abide in Christ, we'll produce much fruit. And we talked about, I believe more than anything else, that fruit is, is best described by what Paul calls the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Remember what the first item on Paul's list is of the fruit of the Spirit. It's love. You know what the second item on that list is? Joy. When we abide in a love relationship with the living God, we will find joy. Even in the midst of the storms, even in the midst of hardship, there's a settledness of peace and there's a joy that arises from the innermost part of our being. So Jesus says, I've told you these things. I've told you to, to love as I have loved, to remain in my love, that your joy, that my joy will be in you and that your joy will be fulfilled, will be made complete. You want to find true joy? A happiness that, that transcends circumstances? Walk in a love relationship with the living Christ, and your joy will be made complete. Abiding in his love. Second, Jesus gives us this as the mark of true disciples. Love each other. This isn't the first time he said it, and it's not the last time he's going to say it, even in this text. Love one another. If you cannot love each other within the body of Christ, if you cannot sacrificially serve one another within the body of Christ, the world won't have anything to do with me and my church. When in the introduction to this farewell address, back in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, you have these words from Jesus. He said, I give you a new command, love one another. Sounds very familiar. Just as I have loved you, you're to love one another. Why? By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. How's the world going to know that we belong to Jesus. Jesus says the number one mark of the disciple, the number one indicator that you are truly a follower of mine is that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't mean you agree with your brothers and sisters in Christ on everything. You're going to disagree on doctrine. You're going to disagree on, shoot, you disagree on mask, right? Disagree on vaccines. But you can disagree in love. One of the, the saddest things that, that, that I see going on in the church and this is not new, I understand that. 
All of my life I've seen disagreements among Baptists, and Baptists are just stupid enough that we bring all of our disagreements out in public. I had a meeting with a, uh, the assistant fire chief this week and a handful of other pastors, and we were working on emergency preparedness stuff. And I got to, got to visit with quite a while with the, the pastor of the Nazarene church, and he just shook his head, and he's so frustrated. He said, you know, some of my Nazarene brothers and sisters, they're just arguing over this stuff, and it's just pitiful. And they've got these Facebook groups where they're arguing with each other all the time. And he said, I just kind of stay out of that. And I said, well, at least your Nazarene pastor are smart enough not to do it in public. Us Baptists are just goofy enough that we get out on Twitter and make our arguments public so that everybody can see us argue with each other. In an unloving way, it's the saddest thing. Jesus says that the mark of a true disciple is that you're going to love one another. If you can't love a brother and sister in Christ, you need to, be, you need to question where your heart is in your love relationship with Christ. Because if you're abiding in him and you're, you're remaining in his love, in Christ's love, one of the things that does that, if we simply are aware of how much we owe God for the mercy and grace that he poured out upon us on the cross, if, if we can become aware of how, how greatly in need I am of mercy, we'll find ourselves willing to show mercy. If we understand that without the grace of God and without his love, I would be hopeless and helpless. If we really get a handle on that and the cost of our sin, we'd be willing to forgive others for their sin, not only against God, but against us. Love one another. This is where it gets tough, though. How are we going to love each other? How does Jesus qualify this kind of love? Look at the last half of verse 12. As I have loved you. How are we to love each other? Sacrificially and selflessly. Willing to put the other person first. Willing to put their good health, their needs, their desires, their benefits above our rights, sacrificially and selflessly, is how Christ has called us to love others, especially our brothers and sisters within the church. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't love the lost, those who don't know Christ. It comes in a later a later message. Here, he's focused on our love relationship with one another. If that's not enough, if just saying love one another as I have loved you is not enough, Jesus clarifies it. No greater love has anyone than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You know, how does that work itself out? How does it flesh itself out? Uh, right now in my, my, my devotional reading time, I'm reading through a, a First and Second Corinthians. And I've come to that section in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul's dealing with uh, how to handle uh, eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. This is a strange text and it doesn't really relate to us. But in Corinth, the very best steaks 
And probably the best lamb chops you could get were those that were being sold at the meat market that had been sacrificed to idols. Why? Because people gave of their very best sacrificially. And so if you wanted the best steak, if you wanted the best lamb chop, you went to the meat market that sold meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Well, the problem was, if you're a, if you're a mature believer, Paul says, it's, it doesn't matter if that meat was sacrificed to idols or not, because idols are nothing. They're not God. They're meaningless. They're powerless. But the problem is, sometimes a younger believer or a believer who is weaker in their faith, they may stumble if they see you eating meat that you knew and they knew was sacrificed to idols. So, know what Paul said? Don't do it. You can argue with Paul, well, I have a right it doesn't affect me. I have a right to eat meat to sacrifice to idols. Paul says, I don't care about your rights. Your brother's spiritual welfare is more important than your right to eat meat. Go eat something else. Go find meat that wasn't sacrificed to idols or go eat something else. One of my favorite parts of this was Paul said, but if you go to the meat market and, and nobody knows if it's been sacrificed to idols or not, just don't ask. It's Paul's version of don't ask, don't tell. He said, because if you don't ask of if it's been sacrificed to an idol, you don't know whether it's sacrificed to an idol or not. And, and, and the, the weaker brother that's watching you won't know. It doesn't matter because the idol's meaningless. What matters is your brother in Christ. What matters is do you love him enough to surrender your right or your desire for his benefit, for his spiritual welfare? Are you willing to be selfless enough that you don't have to have it your way for the betterment of his life, his heart, and for the kingdom. That's the principle here that, that Paul uses, and that's what Jesus is trying to tell us. Very few of us in this room will actually be asked to die, to give up our life for a brother or sister in Christ. There's, there may be a few of you who serve in a public service area, like in the military, or you're a police officer, or you're a fireman that's called to run into a burning building. And I have no doubt, especially some of you that I know that serve in those areas, that you would do that sacrificially for someone else. But very few of us will actually be asked to do that. But we may be asked to give up what our rights are for the betterment of somebody else's spiritual health. And we ought not fight that. Because that's what it means to love, to surrender sacrificially. And then he kind of closes out this with what this results in is you end up walking not in a, a contractual relationship with God. You end up walking in a friendship with Christ. And, and he says, he tells his disciples here to these 11, you're no, I no longer even call you servants. Interesting, later on, Peter's going to call himself a servant when he writes his letters. Paul's going to call himself a servant. But Jesus tells his disciples, I don't even call you servants. Because a servant is in a contractual relationship. The boss tells you what to do, you go do it. You don't ask why, right? It's kind of like my mama. My mom would say, go do so-and-so. If I looked at her and say why, she'd say, because I told you so, all right? She had no obligation to explain to me why. But in a friendship, in a relationship, it's not that way. We, we want to bring each other in on what, what the purpose is and what the plan is. I believe that's how the church is put together. We spent a, spent a lot of time dealing with this issue. When, 
in, my, in the dissertation that I just finished, one of the, the struggles that I had was uh, talking about this relationship between the pastor and the church. And, and you've got this distinction where the, the pastor is a part of the body of Christ, the pastor is a part of the family, but the pastor is also given a position of leadership. And so you have people that err too far on one side or the other. And I had some pushback when I started talking about the pastor is a church member. He ought to be connected to the body of Christ. He ought to be intimately uh, walking in relationship with the sheep, where others would say, no, the pastor needs to maintain some type of authoritarian leadership. You know what? The very best leaders I've had, even when I was in secular employment, were those leaders who would get down on their knees and serve and work alongside the employees. I've seen it over and over again. A quick example, and we're a little short on time today, so I'm rushing through some of this. But a quick example, when I, when I was at Howard Payne University, I was uh, working at a restaurant, and I had one boss there. I was a, a delivery guy and a, a delivery manager, and so I'm working at this restaurant, and one of the, the day managers uh, would, he would just tell you what to do. Now, it, one of the, the jobs of the drivers was to once a week to wash the baseboards. If you were a day driver, you had to wash the baseboards of the, of the entire uh, restaurant, and so, you know, he, he'd sit back. It doesn't matter how busy I'd been, how much I had on my plate, he'd Sit, sit back in a chair, put his feet up on the table when it was slow in the middle of the afternoon, and watch me wash the baseboards. I had another manager, though, and I hated working for him. I had another manager, though, that uh, I had a real busy day, I remember, and, and I was just running around, and people were, were ordering pizzas in the middle of the afternoon. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to order them at lunch and at supper time, right now in the middle of the afternoon. I'm running around. I got to get back. I got to get baseboards washed that day. And I come back, and there the store manager was washing the baseboards. Well, guess who I wanted to work for, and guess who I worked harder for, right? Because he was, he was in it with me. He was a part of it. We were serving together, even though I knew his position. See, we, Jesus tells his disciples, we're in it together. I call you friends. I, I'm not just ordering you what to do. I, I've brought you in. I've told you what's going to happen. I've shown you everything that I've heard from my father. I've laid it out. We're in it together. Church, we ought to be in it together. We're, we're friends. I don't know how many times I've heard friends of mine who are in the ministry who, who talk about this disjointed or, or disconnected relationship they have with other leaders in the church. In particular, in the Baptist world, it's what we believe are the two main offices in the church, pastoral leadership and deacons. And it seems like they're on opposite sides, and they're, it's us against them. It ought not ever be us against them. We're in it together. We're called to love each other. We're to walk in a friend relationship with one another just as we walk in this relationship with Christ. We're to love each other just as he loved us. We're to have the same kind of love relationship within the body of Christ that he had with the Heavenly Father. That's what this text is telling us. The mark of a true disciple is that we love one another. And then third, what this leads to is it produces fruit that lasts fruit that abides. Last week, we looked at that text when he says, if you abide in me and I in you, you'll produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In verse 5. Here, you see Jesus add just a little bit to that focus. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. You cannot be connected in a love relationship with Christ and produce fruit and then go out and have broken relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ 
and that fruit remain. If you produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, if that's what's flowing out of your life as you walk in an abiding relationship with Christ, that's going to lead you to love one another within the body, and that fruit is going to multiply, and it's going to remain. It's going to last. But if you tell me, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm walking with Jesus, but you don't have peace, patience, kindness that you show to other believers, you're not going to have fruit that remains. And I'm going to suggest that you're probably not abiding in a love relationship with Christ. You might be going through the motions. You might be checking your boxes of the commands. But if you're walking in a love relationship with Christ, you're going to have fruit that is produced through you. First of those fruits is you're going to love one another. And that fruit is going to last. It's going to remain, and it's going to pay dividends. So here's the crux of it. Here's the bottom line. God desires that you and I first walk in a love relationship with him. That, if, if, that you have surrendered your heart and life to him, just as I talked about the young man who, who confessed his sin and asked Christ to, to, to cleanse him and to fill him and to change him. You've begun right there. You've begun a relationship with the holy God. And then you walk in that relationship. It's not a transactional relationship based on me doing good things for God so God does good things for me. I cannot do enough good things to become holy. I cannot accomplish enough good task to measure up so that somehow I could go to heaven one day. All I can do is lay my, myself down before the foot of the cross and say, God, I don't have it in me. I need you to change me. Your love is going to have to make the difference. And then once God's love transforms our lives and we walk in that love, we'll see us transformed from the inside out and it will change his church you get the point yet? If you don't, Jesus reiterated in verse 17, this is what I command you, not suggest, not tell you, oh, well, you need to, you need to get saved, but then you kind of have an option about how you treat other believers. This is what I command you, that you love one another. Love as he has loved us.